1: josh marshall and this is the josh marshall podcast with kate rika let me get some house cleaning out of the way first um we have a few things going on in this episode first of all uh kate is uh on vacation and, uh, but we, we pre-recorded this week's episode in advance. So that episode is going to be coming shortly after this one. And when we recorded that episode, we had it in mind that um, there was a good chance that Donald Trump would have been indicted by the time you heard the episode. So that episode remains current. In fact, during that episode, we actually talk about the fact that you probably already know that he's been indicted. um we are coming to you from the past before it happened, et cetera et cetera et cetera um, so that one is going to be that one is gonna come probably shortly after this one. This episode is a, an instapod a kind of a a breaking news pod because as you know some pretty pretty big news happened uh right about dinner time yesterday um when we found out that the thing we had been expecting for a long time, uh Donald Trump's indictment in the January sixth investigation uh finally finally came down now, as we know uh what has been sort of bundled together as the January sixth investigation, most of the things actually proceed. January sixth. There's things that happened in the lead up to it. A few things. It's some some things happen uh, during it, and uh, you know a few things after. So in any case, we are going to talk about that today. And to do that, I'm joined by my colleague Josh Kavinsky, um, because Josh is uh, on our staff. In you know, in addition to covering a number of storylines, is our main reporter on the Trump investigations, which, as you know, uh, is very much a full time job at the moment, because there are so many. In fact, you know, a lot of organizations have whole teams covering all these investigations. But as we know, this was and is the big one, and it is three out of the four that we have expected. The one that is still hanging out there is the state investigation, or actually the-, the the investigation in the state of Georgia, out of Fulton County, which is the county where it's basically Atlanta, and that one is that one is the closest to this investigation since it basically covers a subset of the same series of bad acts. It's basically the January sixth coup attempt, as it as it unfolded in the state of Georgia. Now, uh, we're gonna we're just gonna run through kind of the top details of this indictment, yesterday's indictment, as we understand them, get into a little kind of uh, a commentary as well. But basically, we want to break it down for you because we know it's still pretty new for all of us. Uh, as you know, the Josh Marshall podcast is brought to you by Grady's Cold Brew Ice Coffee. You can get 25% off any order at Grady's Coldbrew.com if you use the promo code TPM. Again, that's Grady's Coldbrew.com with the promo code TPM. Okay, Josh, so first of all, you know, you, uh, you and Kate, but basically, uh, it ended up being uh, it entirely. You did this interview with this. Uh, I'm not sure. I guess, I guess I'm not sure. Technically, the term dissident journalist is 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 r- independent Russian journalist. Um, and and uh, a lot of you listeners uh, got back to us and just said you loved it. It's gotten it's gotten sort of rave reviews. People found it fascinating. I found it fascinating. So that was a great job, Josh. I really I really enjoyed it. Um, so let's just jump right in. Okay, you've been covering uh this investigation kind of all the Trump investigations for months. We have known with increasing certainty for some time or increasing likelihood then bordering on certainty that this indictment some form of it was going to come down. It seems from from my view broadly what we expected. But can you walk walk us through what in this indictment was different from what we expected? Um, well, just like that. What was what was not what we expected? And what were the basic things that conform more or less to what we thought was coming?
0: Sure. Well, first of all, Josh, thanks for having me on. Thanks for your kind words about the um, podcast last week. Um, you know, to answer your question, I think that... <sighs> If you wanted to kind of focus on a few key moments that were new and surprising, um, the one that really stuck out to me was the extent to which the indictment revealed that Jack Smith penetrated um, Trump's inner circle and the fact that the people around Trump, most notably Mike Pence, were basically taking notes on Trump's behavior um, for at least some of the time. Uh, So there's one moment, you know, it's a couple days before January 6th, I think a week before, where Pence, or rather where Smith cites contemporaneous notes that Mike Pence took um, about a call that Trump made where uh, Trump was telling Pence that the DOJ, you know, found incontrovertible proof of uh, uh, voter fraud, which obviously everybody knew was completely untrue. Um, right. So that was one thing. There are other moments too, I think, in the indictment where they have like, and this, I think, wasn't really noticed because we're all sort of used to it. But as we all know, on January 6th itself, Trump just kind of sat in the White House, just watched it on TV, refusing to call the rioters off. Um, and Jack Smith has like a pretty detailed narration of, uh, you know, his claims that, Uh, Jack Smith basically has a fairly detailed narration of how Trump's advisors tried to get him to issue a statement calling the rioters off and he refused. So again, I mean, I think these are some things that we might be kind of used to by now because it's been two and a half years, Right. but um, it's significant that Smith was able to nail all this down in the indictment. And it kind of shows, I think it just reminds us again, uh, how shocking these events were just, I mean, it was a coup attempt.
1: Right. Right. No. So I, the, the, uh, there's been a lot of commentary in the last uh, 18 hours or so about you know mike pence in essence being sort of like the star witness of this investigation as 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 the talking indictment you know goes and the fact that uh maybe not totally surprising but we didn't know about these contemporaneous notes when you say about you know penetrating his inner circle um who else are we including there that either were taking notes or maybe it seems from the indictment kind of you know spilled in 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 the grandeur i mean you kind of have to spill Right, I mean that's it's right. not like it's it's not like it's voluntary. But who else are we talking about in that in that context?
0: So the big question that is outstanding is whether or not Mark Meadows cooperated. Um, and we see at various points in the indictment uh, suggestions, which kind of fall short of full confirmation that Meadows likely cooperated with the investigation. Again, we don't know that for sure. But um, one kind of big tell is that we have these six co-conspirators. Um and it's fairly straightforward, at least five out of six of them to determine who they are, their right. enemies. Um, and none of them are Meadows. But throughout the indictment, we do see references to statements from Trump's chief of staff. Um, we see, I think, at one or two points, we see messages or emails that the chief of staff was sending. So again, Josh, as you say, I mean, the federal government, federal law enforcement has lots lots of power to uh, obtain these, these messages, at least. Right. But there are a few moments that seem to have come from testimony, um, which again, you know, you, you put somebody from a grand jury, they have to say, but still, it, it the fact that you have that and that Mark Meadows does not appear to have been referenced as a co-conspirator is at least suggestive of the fact that he might have cooperated. And there have been a lot of rumors of that to date. Um, we know that he has his own lawyer, uh, who's a real lawyer and not right. um, a sort of Trump attorney. Right, um, right, right. He also hasn't really been speaking in public for over six months, I think. So there are a lot of th- sort of things that suggest that you know, Meadows, who was Trump's, one of Trump's main confidants, was you know, his chief of staff at the time, uh, did cooperate with the investigation.
1: And I guess when we say cooperate there's uh I mean when you go into a grand jury you're you have you have very little grounds upon which not to talk. You sort of have to talk. Um I mean I guess you can plead the 5th if it's about if if it's about you, I but even there I think Aren't I mean? I I I always hesitate to get into things where I where it's embarrassing for me not to know the answer on when we're talking about a podcast. But in any case, I guess a lot of this comes down to it's one thing to answer each question that is posed to you versus sort of come to a de facto, you know, even if it's not a a plea agreement, to kind of say, okay, I'm going to tell you everything I know here, and 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 be cooperative as opposed to just answering each question yes no kind of thing is that part of what we're talking about here do we think that he may have he may have come to some actual agreement to testify in exchange for lenience or to not be charged or whatever
0: the honest answer is we just don't know because we also just don't know what meadows's own exposure would have been to um you know the scheme uh one interesting text that we reported on back in December, um, and this wasn't part of the text that we kind of had exclusively. This is something that was unearthed by the January 6th committee. But it was a series of messages in which Meadows um, basically jokes with another person in the Trump campaign about... Um, just how ridiculous the claims of fraud are. So I think if I recall correctly, it's um, the other person is sort of talking about dead voters in Georgia and Meadows is like, oh yeah, like my son will find us more. Um, and, you know, it, 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 it's pretty clear proof that Meadows understood this was all bullshit. Right. Um, right. Right. So, you know, that I think goes to a state of mind. I mean, that's, that's important. Um, I think it's also worth keeping in mind that, you know, just to plug TPM's Uh, plug TPM, we had that big scoop back in December about all of these texts. And the reason that those even kind of existed, you know, that were sort of, that those were reportable was because Meadows, via his attorney, did cooperate in some limited form, very limited form, but still with the January 6th committee, right? I mean, he did give a subset of the messages he had to the the panel. And so that was, you know, to a congressional inquiry, um, it's at least some indication that Meadows was at least at some point willing to sort of play footsie with with cooperation, and that wasn't even a federal criminal investigation. So I would just put that in the category of more, you know, suggestion that maybe Meadows was willing to kind of play ball with them.
1: Now, one of the things that um, I've heard a lot of discussion about is that there's relatively little about... um, there's relatively little in this indictment touching specifically on Trump's actions on January 6th. It's part of the narrative, but in terms of what constituted his, his crimes, um, you know, his statements at that speech, let's go to the Capitol and stuff like that. And at least what I've understood is that is being interpreted as it it just didn't make sense for Jack Smith to go, to go too far down that road because you are running headlong at least into you know, fairly colorable First Amendment defenses. You know, I was given a political speech. Let's do it. You know, rah, rah, rah. It, that, you know, kind of why go there when you have um, a much stronger case in, in other parts of the scheme? Is that basically right? Can you, can you tell us about that?
0: I think, yeah, I think if you read really the diamond, my sense is that um, Smith is really careful about anything. He's, he's really careful to say that he's not charging Trump with you know, lying, basically, with like lying about having lost the election. Um, What it all is, when, when he charges Trump, when he brings up the lies, it's always in furtherance of you know The fake electors scheme of you know an attempt to stop the January 6th certification session from going forward, uh, the lies themselves are never sort of charged as a, as a standalone thing. It's always in furtherance of something else as a part of a broader conspiracy. Um, but I think, Josh, what's interesting, and I'm interested to hear your thoughts on this, is that when you look at how kind of some right-wing commentators have responded to the indictment, they all sort of almost uniformly, at least as, as far as I've seen, have portrayed this as like an indictment for lying about his loss. Right. Um, And what's also interesting is that very few, almost nobody has said that Smith is lying or that the charges themselves are like baseless. What they're saying rather is that what Trump, Trump did the thing, it just isn't a crime. Um, Right. So I think that kind of partly answers your question.
1: Yeah. And okay. So one, one sort of technical matter that I haven't seen discussed yet. Okay. So we have four charges or charges under, and I guess charges under four separate theories and statutes. If, Trump is uh, like, let's say Trump is convicted on all four counts. Do we have a sense of what, what the expose, like how much time do you do for these crimes? What is, wh- how serious are these charges in that sense?
0: The max for any one of them was 20 years. Um, and I mean, Trump is, I, if what I, my understanding is that given how the charges are construed against Trump, I mean, that's what he's exposed that That's, that's his exposure.
1: And that's for any one of them. That's That's the maximum. Okay, so so I guess you know he's uh, you know ironically at least for the moment he's never I don't think he's ever been convicted of a of a criminal offense. So he would just you know this is obviously highly you know very hypothetical. He's first time offender. No one gets the max, or it's 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 certainly uncommon to get the max as a as a first time offender. But if you're if you are conceivably facing up to twenty years on four separate charges, um, I mean the guy's almost 80, you're you're looking at some serious time, you know, possibly for the the rest of his life. So it's not, so the point is, um, this isn't like a kind of a line to a federal officer thing where in theory it's five years, but you know, the kind of the norm is you get like, you know, three months in prison and six months, you know, home confinement. It's serious jail time if you get convicted of these offenses.
0: Yeah, I mean the most serious charge that they brought against him is attempting to obstruct an official proceeding, and that I mean, yeah, I mean, that has a maximum sentence of twenty years, um, and it's also one that's been brought against a lot of the January six rioters.
1: Right, right. Now, was there one, another thing that that? Um I noted, was there's no charge of seditious conspiracy. Was that treated as a serious possibility by the people following this case? Or was that kind of never, you know, if you weren't kind of there kind of planning the violence yourself on January 6th, it was that never, never a serious possibility?
0: I think there was like a broad spectrum of what people expected um and that was definitely at like the higher sort of more extreme end of like what the more aggressive end of what Smith could have done. I don't think it was I never saw it like completely just discounted, but I don't think people thought it was entirely likely. Um, right. Yeah.
1: Yeah, the the thing about, you know, when you mentioned about commentary about this and the the sort of general argument that hey, he he thought he won. So this, you know, you can, you can say you won if you thought you won. What's, what's the problem? I mean, I think, I think there's a, I mean, we, this is part of the, um, you know, kind of part of the reality distortion field of, of the Trump universe that we're always in this, uh, we come again and again to this question of Trump is weird and he thinks weird things and he doesn't think that's, that's, breaking the law. So it's not breaking the law. And, you know, some of some of these things are there are various ways that lo- there are various legal arguments and legal explanations that, that lawyers have. But one of the ways you, you confront these things is to argue them sort of from the other direction. Like, if, if that is a reasonable line of argument, can can a justice system work at all? Or people can just say, you know, some version of I didn't know, or that's not. I have a different interpretation of the law, or I think the sky is green. well, clearly that is not. That nothing can work that way. And I, and I, but I think that more on on this line, this idea, and that clearly is going to be one of Trump's basic defenses, which is, I thought I won. I thought I won, and and one of the arguments that um you know kind of real legal commentators. We're making yesterday is that the indictment makes a very strong case, but there are only a few cases where they have kind of offhand remarks where Trump is basically saying, "Man, it sucks that I lost," right, or something like where you know you don't have you don't have a secret recording where Trump says to Rudy Giuliani, "Look, obviously I lost, but fuck that, I don't want to lose, so let's yeah. let's lie." You know, he does. They don't have something like that. But in the law, it's not enough to say, "Well, I believed it." there's a whole standard of it has to be a reasonable belief you you can't just believe in it cuz people can people can say they believe anything and certain pathological people can get themselves to believe anything but it has to be a a reasonable belief and that is going to come up at trial you can't just assert the sky is green and therefore you're off the hook for for anything. The other thing though, and and which I have seen relatively little of this, let's say that he really thought he was the true winner. You still can't obstruct, you still can't try to uh, block a lawful counting of votes. You, You still can't do that, no matter how much you think that. Al Gore thought he was the real winner of the 2000 election. And He had a pretty good reason to think that he that didn't that belief um didn't entitle him to come up with fake electors to try to you know block the counting of you know what i'm saying That, that that is a basic thing that is i think going to be central to this trial that you know you can you can believe all sorts of things but you can't break the law to try to, um, you know, vindicate your belief. I mean, lots of, I mean, we have just as, you know, kind of one more point. There are lots of times in um, election litigation where if everyone is acting in good faith, uh, people go into a, a court context where you say, "Hey, I won. these votes that were not counted because they were sort of you know deemed spoiled or something like that those are real votes. they need to be counted and and again, th- those are cases where you do have two sides that may be arguing from self-interest but two sides that re- really think they're right. The judge makes a decision and that's it. Right. You know, you you can't show up at the at the swearing in and kind of beat up the winner and say no 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 I'm you know <laughs> it still doesn't give you a right to do things that are that are that are breaking the law and that and that's why um, if we if we think back to when this was all happening there were a lot of Republicans saying and not that they were any you know profiles and courage but basically saying look he has a right to exhaust, exhaust the court process. You know we may think all these all these lawsuits and all these claims are bogus, but he has every right to go into court and litigate them and But once that litigation's done, it's over. you move on and it seems like you know the entire thing here is that he was not willing to move on
0: the other way I 've heard this analogized is you know i can I can tell you Josh, I can lie to you that I have twenty million dollars, but if I write that down a piece of paper and take it to the bank or to the IRS. And even if I, for whatever reason, believe that some asset of mine is worth 20 million, it's a very different thing if I make that representation to the government or to somebody to whom it actually matters, right? And that was a big thing that Trump was basically doing here. Was it was a right. thing for him to go around and like lie that he won the election, but for him to take that to Congress and put all face the places he took it and uh, you know, use it to try and... Or like the fake electors, for example, right? For them to like, say that they were, in fact, the, 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 the lawfully appointed electors, right? Uh, right? You know, it, it, it's very different for them to go to Congress and say that. Um, I think the other piece of this, though, which did kind of catch my attention from the indictment, and this is a little separate, but I think it's downstream of everything you just discussed, is that, you know, it's like, yes, there weren't really profiles encouraged on the Republican side, but the indictment does highlight the just really, I think, extreme depravity that did take place, most notably um, Jeff Clark at the DOJ. And there is one real revelation in the indictment, which is, you know, The Insurrection Act thing? The Insurrection Act yeah, thing. Go yeah, go ahead. Yeah, yeah, so yeah. Pat Philbin is at, you know, Trump's deputy White House counsel. This is January 3rd, so three days before, you know, the attack on the Capitol. Having a conversation with Jeff Clark, and he tells Jeff Clark, you know, if your plan succeeds, if Trump stays in office, there's going to be major riots in every, you know, major American city. And Jeff Clark replies, well, that's why we have an Insurrection Act. Um well, that's why that's what that's what the instruction act is for, right which you know it it <sighs> Smith doesn't go so far as to say this, but there's just been a lot of sort of reporting and suggestion that the plan of Trump and those around him in those days was to kind of anticipate that Antifa or claim that you know Antifa um, was going to just you know stage all this violence to contest Trump's law, Trump's supposed victory. Yep. and then Trump would have to use the Insurrection Act to put down you know what he would have described as violence from Antifa when in fact it you know would have been people saying, hey, you lost.
1: Right, um, right. Yeah, and, so, and for clarity, when we say the Insurrection Act, it means to bring out the, the regular military right. to put down civil violence in the United States.
0: And if we recall, part of the reason why January 6th, why it took a while for the military to respond, was because that's what everybody was terrified of. Yep. I mean, it was. Yep. I think yep. it was January 4th, so the day after that conversation between Philbin and Clark, when you, know, you had every living former Secretary of Defense uh, right, not bad in the Washington Post saying, "Do not use the Insurrection Act. Do not bring the military into you know resolve, resolving the election." Uh, so just seeing that there is shocking.
1: Yeah, no, it's funny. This is this is one of the things, and I, I feel like it's never gotten quite enough play. That there's been you know lots of criticism of the Pentagon, the military. Like, why did you know why why was this allowed to spin out of control the the, the way that it was? And I've I've always thought they got kind of a bad rap and that people um, and, and and even for other, uh, not just the military itself, but other, the, the DC National Guard, the Virginia National Guard, the Maryland, you know, all the kind of people who could have, like, why weren't you ready for this? Why, right. why, Why were we kind of, you know, caught with our pants down? And I feel like people forget what we all remember at the time, which was that there was huge concern that Trump would do this, especially after what had happened in June of 2020, where he kind of did this a bit because of the, um, the the version of the George Floyd protests that were in DC. Um, and so the military, like kind of everyone was saying to the Pentagon and the military, don't let him do it. Do not let him do it. Do not let him somehow bring the military here and I think very understandably, there you know, from the brass down, there were kind of the word went down we are not we're not part of this, we're not part of this, and that inevitably um, made everybody a little slow on the uptake when January 6 actually happened. plus I think even even realizing it happened, I think there was still a lot of trepidation of. If you're like Mark Milley or other people on the joint staff of kind of like once you get the U.S. military on the scene in in the U.S. Capitol, Trump is still the commander in chief. And once they're there, if the U.S. military is in some sense like, you know, occupying the Capitol building, Trump can make an order and we're going to have to follow it. That's a that is a, you know. In any case, I've always thought they, as you say, they get they get of a a bit of a bad rap for the, you know, kind of tardy response.
0: Yeah. And I mean, just to your point, Josh, at the end there, like about the military having to follow the order, it also just reminds me of this this is not in the indictment, but this very strange period of two weeks after January sixth, where Trump was president and it was scary. Like people thought something he was gonna order something crazy. But there was also this sort of increasing sense, it seemed that like he was just sort of there but nobody was gonna pay attention to him anymore. <laughs> yeah so well he that was out of
1: uh, office. Like, yeah. I mean that was that was, you know, in a, a very liminal period in our constitutional history because I think you're right. I think there was a there was a broad sense and I think a real sense of of Trump is still the president, but everyone kind of understanding this guy is out of control, you know don't basically don't do what he says um which is something that is you know was substantively the right decision in that moment but is like totally constitutionally haywire like what are you talking about and and you have the additional fact that both um both the 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 civilian leadership of the pentagon and the department of justice had basically been decapitated at that point um so yeah, the whole thing was uh, the whole thing was crazy. And 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 back to you know Jeff Clark has always um, has always appeared to be a a ridiculous figure in this drama. You know he's this environmental lawyer kind of you know half elevated to leadership. Trump's trying to make him um, uh, attorney general, and e- even you know not to. Um, <laughs> Not that someone's looks matter, but he presents as a kind of a nerdy guy, right? You just look at him. He's a kind of a, a nebbishy guy, right? Yeah. And and he's sort of seen in this light, but then you see this thing, he's like, that's what the insurrection acts for. You're like, Dude, what the fuck? Like what the like what the fuck are you talking about? And I think it was maybe John Favreau uh, said this on, on Twitter yesterday, and he brought out kind of what the point is. The point is to kind of uh just assert, you know, kind of create a fait accompli, Trump's going to stay president. And then when people freak out, call out the military, and basically declare martial law. And that's, that's what they're talking about here. Um, and, and, you know, so the whole thing is, uh, as we know, the whole thing is nuts. And one of the things, as you say, about reading this indictment, you are brought back to the sheer gravity and craziness of what happened, that in some ways, and this gets back to the whole question of why did it take so long, all this kind of stuff. In some ways, the fact that Trump is still on the scene at large, still a, a a central player in our political process. Basically, all of the Republicans who at various levels participated in this are still part of our political process. I think that cumulatively kind of muffles the sense of how crazy this was. Because at some level, our brains tell us, if we're all kind of, you know, if we're all still here being part of the political process, then that thing must have been part of the political process, and it and it's and it sort of muffles it. Before we before we finish up, can you give us a little? Ins- there was a um, some discussion of the fact that the uh, the dr- the judge that Trump uh, drew in the sort of the lottery process that that assigns judges was certainly not the judge he might have, that he would have wanted. Um, can you, can you walk us through who, who the judge is and, and the judge's reputation and all that kind of stuff? Sure. So her name is Tanya
0: Chutkin. Um, Obama appointed her in 2014. She was born in Jamaica. She's African-American woman. Um, and she throughout the January 6th cases has taken a, I don't want to say a hard line because I, I tend to you know, sympathize with where she's coming from, but um, I mean, she's been one of the harsher justices in terms of sentencing and also just in terms of her, what she says about the defendants um, during sentencing. So, I mean, she's been very kind of intense about that, um, or she's been very clear rather about, you know, what they did, about what, about describing the damage that the rioters inflicted on American democracy. Um, There's also another interesting moment with her where, you know, as the January 6th committee investigation in Congress was beginning to really pick up steam, Trump sued to block their access to uh, records from his administration. And it was Tanya Chutkin who presided over that proceeding and who completely just, you know, eviscerated his arguments uh, in court. So, you know, she, she has a lot of familiarity with these cases. She's shown that she understands the issues deeply, that she cares about, you know, she understands the impact it's had in American democracy. And I will just add, Well, this is delicate, but I think one way in which the Stop the Steal, you know, Trump's effort to reverse his loss has just not really been discussed is in terms of race, but it really was majority black cities... Uh, you know, states like Georgia, where it was African American voters who put Biden over the over the edge, um, that Trump was were, whose votes Trump were trying to invalidate. Um, you know, and that just runs through the entire thing. It isn't discussed for as much as it should be, I think. Um, but again, you know, we now have a situation where he's going to the case is going to be tried by an African American woman who you know was born Jamaican, you know, immigrated to the country. So I think that's all. I think just worth kind of keeping in mind for broad context.
1: Now, one of the charges, though, it's not about African American voting rights; it's it's voting rights in general. One of yes. one of the charges is basically Americans went out to vote, and you tried to invalidate their votes. What's can you walk us through what the what the legal particulars of that one of the charges is? That's the Isn't civil you, right. This is the KKK the KKK act charge. I, be, I believe so. It's it's it's. I guess it's in the in the discussion of it in the news. It's it's basically denying a right and i conspiracy, think it's conspiracy against rights right 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 well i think this is one there's a, as you say there's a civil war a civil uh, really a reconstruction era law that was originally um the the original focus of it was you have uh, terrorist paramilitaries i.e the kkk that would use uh pressure violence or whatever to to Uh, either stop african americans from voting or to invalidate their votes and that is they're charging him under that um under that uh statute and i think on the argument that um at least the 81 million people uh, if i got the if i if i get the exact number wrong don't i'm not i'm not pushing some conspiracy theory whatever the the total number of biden voters that uh those people Went out and voted. They won, and Trump was trying to invalidate but, their votes.
0: Yeah, but I think the important point on that is, is that uh, it, yes, it, it is disenfranchising you know the, the Biden voters' right to vote. But if you look at how that case has been treated, how that law has been treated historically, um, even if you are a Trump voter, you are a victim of that conspiracy because right. The, the because right you also is, voted. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Because the, the right is, is to have your vote count, is to have your vote counted honestly, regardless of for whom it, for who it was regardless of who you were voting for right? Right, right um so even if i voted for trump in 2020 in a sense i was you know it was a conspiracy against my rights because the right is to have your vote counted honestly by the, by the government
1: yeah to have an honest election in theory yeah everybody wants to have an honest election even though you lost right. i won't i won't I, i'm given i think a lot of trump voters a benefit of the doubt there but but you know that's just because i'm a nice guy on the final so final question i want to go over is one of the one of the big uh questions about this case is, will it be able to be tried before the 2024 election? And as sort of a subset of that question, will it be able to be tried before the Mar-a-Lago case? Um, Since The Mar-a-Lago case is now set for May of 2024. Um, Just in the nature of things, cases don't get sped up, they get slowed down, they get delayed and stuff. And I think there's a general uh, assumption agreement that if it is scheduled to go after the Mar-a-Lago case and each time the Mar-a-Lago case gets delayed, it will get delayed. Then in practice, if if that's the order of events, this is not going to get tried beforehand. Now, there's been a lot of commentary. Is there anything that has come out sort of uh, anything about what we learned yesterday that gives us any insight to whether this may be able to be tried before the Mar-a-Lago case or any anything about kind of next steps and scheduling?
0: We'll see. I mean a lot's gonna depend on the judge who you know, as we said earlier, understands the gravity of the charges. One thing that's really delaying Mar-a-Lago, well, there's a couple of things. One is just the presence of classified information, which automatically makes that case way more complicated to try and makes it just take a lot longer time to bring to trial. The other is that Trump has two other defendants alongside him in the indictment, which just, you know, it, it just makes everything more complicated. In this case, Jack Smith has brought an indictment against Trump only. It's four charges. It's a very straightforward indictment. Um, it's very easy, easy to read. And so the expectation, I mean, I think there's a chance that this case will go to trial before Mar-a-Lago, which right now is scheduled for May, um, which I will just note, you have a lot of people from Trump's campaign who contributed evidence and testimony to this. And so there is a real prospect of people who either were from his, his first his administration last time or you know, who might even currently be involved in his campaign testifying against him <laughs> um, at trial.
1: Well, there's one th- one thing that came up here, and I believe he he's not identified, but he's not he's not one of the uh, co-conspirators. Yeah. Is Jason Miller, yeah. and Miller is you know I don't know if he's still running that you know Getter's uh, Twitter clone or what he's doing, but he's still a Trump person. He's still I I don't know I don't know exactly uh, you know it's kind of like a crime family. You're just part of the family. To, you know your exact your exact title. So, so he had, I mean, he's the one I think that says that like, you know, kind of conspiracy shit from the mothership or something, or, you know, kind of these, 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 uh, contemptuous descriptions of the claims that they're making. And another point I've seen is, is that it is given how the indictment is structured, it's almost impossible to imagine that Mike Pence won't be, a star witness and um i think given how the campaign is going it is quite unlikely he will still be in in you know in the presidential race um but that's awkward right i mean that is uh you know that's a that's an awkward thing um so that's it And, and just one other point for our listeners uh alvin bragg the again uh county da uh basically up here in new york the boroughs of New York City are are counties also. We got a weird system. So he's Manhattan, but it's a county. So he's basically a parallel uh to uh Fannie Willis down in down in Fulton County. And so he's the one with the sort of the stormy Daniels adjacent uh state charges in, in New York City, New York State. And he has made some comments over in the last couple of weeks basically that he would be willing to step aside as it were. Not Step aside, but he would be willing to go into court if if Jack Smith wants to schedule this case in January or February of two thousand twenty four Alvin Bragg has been signaling he would be willing to accommodate that to to push his trial later, so there does seem to be some um, some stars coming into alignment to um, to get this scheduled before the Mar-a-Lago case. And, you know, it's 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 funny that, I mean, clearly Donald Trump wants to delay all of this stuff until after the 2024 election, because if he wins, he makes it all go away. Um, and I'll, I'll tell you, even, you know, this has not gotten a lot of discussion, but if you have a scenario, every, everybody makes the point that a president can't either, you know, on the off chance that anybody's going to say the president can pardon himself, but a president doesn't have to pardon himself. He can just tell the Department of Justice to stop. Can't do anything at the state level. If you did have a president convicted of a crime at a state level, you do have a kind of an impossible situation there. And it would not surprise me if the Supreme Court said, he's a convict, he has to serve his time, but... we've got to push it back till after his presidency because how can you, this person's the president. I mean, it's not as crazy as it sounds. Um, In any case, uh, on one of the, I think it was like CNN, I think it was this guy Jennings, I can't remember. You know, uh, Republican, but I think he's kind of like a old Mitch McConnell guy. So like not never Trump by any stretch of the imagination, but not down the line Trump. Um, And he was saying kind of like, you can't ask people to vote before this is. You can't have this hanging out there, right? And and uh, and Trump doesn't believe that. And I think the reality is that's just true on both sides. How can you? How can you? How can you just have this hanging out there? Now, you know, life's hard. I mean, you can't. You know, what are you going to do? You're not going to speed it up. Um, you know, outside the bounds of what is normal since trump would have a pretty good argument to say like that is i am being persecuted you know i'm 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 not getting my full you know rights to sort of all the pre-trial stuff you get to do and everything but somewhat to my surprise it does seem like things are lining up in a way that we may have this decided before the election that's that's wild that's that's that's, that's kind of crazy. I mean, one thing, at least from, from my sense of this is you have a judge now who I don't think has any interest in slowing this down in kind of having endless, oh, we're gonna, you know, you've brought up this new kind of like barely plausible claim. Let's, 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 let's have, let's have motions and we'll meet again in a month. Let's, you know, let's do it. Um, so anyway, uh, Hopefully we we have um, we're we're now officially at twice the time that we thought we would go. So you know it's pretty pretty standard for us. Uh, I think we've covered most of the ground that uh, we can cover at this point, since obviously it's all still very new, and um, there are lots of questions that are not uh, settled by the charging document, by the indictment itself. But I hope you found it illuminating. I have found it illuminating, since um, Josh is much deeper in. You know all the, exter- all, all the external moving parts of this case and the other cases besides the things that are actually stated in the indictment. Before we go, anything else we haven't discussed, Josh, that you think is worth bringing up for listeners?
0: I think the one thing I would say, Josh, is just to your point at the end there about the judge rejecting whatever kind of fake or just you know, legitimate arguments Trump's going to throw up. That really is something that goes to the core of the indictment itself which is that throughout the end of 2020, after he lost, Trump and his allies would just throw up all of these sort of fake, basically, disputes, saying, oh, well, you haven't been aware of this fact, so therefore we have to invalidate the election in Wisconsin. Or, you know, therefore, there's a real live dispute in Arizona, so we have to have these fake electors go forth. So I think just one thing that's really important about the Smith indictment is he calls bullshit on that. And it's just, I think, really important both for the judge and for everybody who's watching this going forward to record, to use their critical thinking skills um, and recognize, you know, what's a legitimate dispute and what's just complete like nonsense. Um, and I'll just push that a little bit further. One of the unindicted one of the unindicted co-conspirators, co-conspirator five is Ken Chesbro. He's the kind of mastermind of the fake election scheme. But that was his big thing was that he kind of claimed over and over again, you know, as long as you have a dispute. As an attorney, you can kind of do whatever you want because there's a dispute that gives you cover to, uh, you know, litigate that. Um, right. But again, right. I think what we're getting into it, when we're getting deeper, it's like you can't both sides these things. Um, just because somebody says that they disagree with something or that they have some fact they claim exists to prove that something's wrong, doesn't create a, a dispute. You have to actually, you know, have a good faith disagreeing Right.
1: Right. Well, you know, in, in business, there's something they call the time value of money, which is to say that money right now is not the same thing as money a year from now, two years from now. Right. Even though, and, and not just in the sense that like, yeah, you can gain interest. It's, it's different from that. It's kind of an extra economic thing. And in the law, it, it's, it's, it is somewhat similar that at a certain point, endlessly delaying something is a denial of justice. And, um, and obviously, where you draw that line can be kind of difficult because everybody does have a right to litigate out the, you know, the 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 the, the questions that are there. Um, but at a certain point, you're just delaying because something delayed is kind of the equivalent of it never happening, which is which is kind of how uh, Trump has governed his legal life—not just in the last three years, but for the last four or five decades, basically. Um, and one thing also, and this is something I think a lot of us have been frustrated with, is if something is brought up, there's nothing stopping the judge from saying, okay, let's meet again to- day after tomorrow. Get your arguments, we're going to have a hearing, and we're going to move through this. Um, that, that a basic sense of sort of like, got kind of serious situation we're talking about here do you really have to kind of put this off for like six weeks and you know we always hear well the judge has other cases and I'm like dude dude what are we talking about here this is the big case you got to do something else with those other cases this is and I, I would I would think um, that is what I would hope to see from this judge I don't know if if uh, I, I don't know enough about the intricacies in the particular judge to to say I expect it but at least to say to the extent that things come up that do require a decision to say, okay, we're not going to screw around here. We're going to push right through this and I'm going to give you a decision. We're going to move on. You're not going to, you're not going to sort of abuse the process to have us still talking about this in like 2027. Let's, you know, let's do this. Um, okay. That's, that is a, uh, and and that and that is a really good point because and it's something central to to their scam here which is to say we're going to throw up a ton of dust and because of that dust we're going to say there's just I'm sorry we can't count the votes. And in fact, we've got to have an alternative fake set of votes, you know, because on the off chance that all the dust we've thrown up says we need to, so sorry. Um and and for Smith just to say like no, that's bullshit. That's not that's not litigating anything. that's abusing the process. In fact, it's not just abusing the process, it's part of your crime. It's exactly. an element of your crime. these I guess he t- call them pretextual litigation it's
0: pretextual. And I think when you look at how a lot of the right-wingers are responding saying this is a free speech issue, I think that's the specific point that they're mad about, um, is that you know, they recognize that Smith has kind of called bullshit on this, and they're just right. like clinging, clinging to this idea that like the disputes were real because they can't right. give up. they can't give that up. Right, right. Well, that is game. I mean,
1: right. I mean, and that does, I think, again, there's this point about you sort of argue these things from the other direction. Is it really possible to have any judicial system if people can just infinitely come up with nonsensical claims and it can't be, you know, it, clearly that's not the case. Someone has to be able to say at a certain point, you can't do this anymore. You can't just just come up with nonsensical things forever, and that the state or the election system or whatever has to wait an infinite period of time to let you just kind of come up with nonsensical stuff. Clearly, that can't be the case. The only question is, where do you strike that line to say, up until this point, okay, you're, you know, you're, you're exhausting your legal rights, and to this point, you are actually obstructing the election. Because you're done, it's 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 time to move on. Speaking of moving on, it's time for us to move on. Uh, thank you again for joining us for this special uh, special episode. We we hope we have shed some light on uh, what we know about this set of indictments. Um, a little, you know, eighteen hours into them. Let me remind you, um, we have the regular episode of the podcast that is gonna come out. I believe it's gonna come out later today. It'll come out after this special episode. Um, it'll come out this afternoon. So roughly around the same time that it would that it would normally come out. And that one is gonna be one that Kate and I recorded um about a week ago. And again, it's about all the cases, but we recorded it with the knowledge that these indictments are probably going to come down by the time you listen to it. So it's still a good one and, and it gives you um kind of an overview of how all these different cases are going to play out together next year. All the, what will probably be four sets of criminal indictments plus the various civil litigations that are that are still going on. Got one in in New York State. We got a round two with Eugene Carroll um, because he, well, for for a number of different reasons. So that's a good one too. Uh, let me remind you uh, the Josh Marshall podcast is brought to you by Grady's Cold Brew Ice Coffee. You can get 25% off on any order if you go to Grady's Coldbrew.com and use the promo code. TPM, thanks for joining us, Josh. And uh, I, I'm sure we'll be l- looking, reading a number of, <laughs> we'll be go- going nonstop the rest of the day as 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 new details come out on this. Thanks a lot, Josh. All right, we'll talk to you soon.
0: The Josh Marshall Podcast is hosted by me, TPM reporter Kate Riga, and TPM founder, editor in chief Josh Marshall. The show is produced by Jackie Wilhelm. Thanks to Why Not Jansfeld for our podcast theme song. And thanks to all our TPM members who make this possible. Rate and review us on Apple Podcasts and subscribe wherever you listen.